Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas. Articles, videos and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. How can philosophy help us think more clearly? To discuss this question, we're joined this week by world-renowned philosopher of language and logic, Timothy Williamson. Studying logic, you are actually studying the world in, in its most abstract and general structural features. Williamson is the Wickham Professor of Logic at the University of Oxford and is renowned for his work on vagueness and epistemology. He has also written extensively on what philosophy is and how it should be done in works such as Doing Philosophy and The Philosophy of Philosophy. People tend not to be very good at seeing the the faults in their own views, so you have to get somebody else to do it for you. In our conversation, Williamson discusses a range of issues, including the importance of debate, the logic behind Alan Turing's computer, and why being confused about philosophy can actually be a good thing. Today's interview was recorded on location at How the Light Gets In, the world's largest philosophy and music festival. For more information on the festival, head over to howthelightgetsin.org. Debating in in public is a scary experience because um, you're you're putting your ideas on the line, and uh, the whole point of it is that ideas should be properly be tested. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at iai underscore tv. Leave a review on iTunes and head over to our website, iai.tv, to hear more from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. And if you enjoy our podcast, you might also enjoy Philosophy Talk, a radio show, podcast and online community created by our friends at Stanford University. Head over to philosophytalk.org to check it out. Back now to Timothy Williamson. Your latest book goes back to the principles underlying philosophy, um, and philosophy undergraduates are famously quite confused. Um, the more they read, um, uh, the more the more philosophy they read, and the more philosophy they they try to understand. Um, but philosophy can also clear up our minds, right, and help help our uh, organize our minds. So I was wondering. Um, is the confusion part of the solution, or how, how did the two work? I don't think being confused is a solution to, to any problem that, that I know, but I, I'm not sure that philosophy students are more confused than students in, in other areas, necessarily. I mean, they're finding the material that they're working with quite difficult to understand because it is, it is very demanding, but at the same time, um, the fact that they're conf- that they're confused is a sign that they're actually engaging with it properly. I mean, the the, the really bad sign is when you get somebody who, who sort of 
quickly skims through uh, pages of difficult philosophy and 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 thinks that they've understood it completely, and that tells you that they've understood nothing nothing at all. So, um, you know, conf- confusion is a natural reaction to the, the difficult process of, of thinking things through in a deeper way than, than you're, you're used to. And um, with a bit of luck, it, some, it sometimes leads to, to a much clearer state of, of mind at the, at the end. And, I, and plenty of students that I teach do, do get to that kind of clarity about, not about everything, but about quite a lot of things. <laughs> So, so how can philosophy help us think clear, uh, more clearly? Well, it, it, philosophy gives you a, a kind of uh, toolkit for thinking about issues of, of a very, of very general kind. So, so that, um, for example, you, just, you, you learn things like distinguishing between necessary conditions and sufficient conditions and... Um, the sort of things that you just get in the habit when people start talking about one thing being a condition for another. You know, you ask yourself, are they talking about necessary conditions or sufficient conditions? And um, and so you, you you learn to distinguish different different things that they might be saying and work out which one they are saying, or maybe we realise that that they're confused between the the two. And you have a kind of checklist of of things that you control for when when you're when you're reading and um, and that kind of brings out the uh, the contours of what somebody's saying a bit more clearly than than if you just sort of read through it with glazed eyes with without very much um, attempt to kind of analyze it and it gives you so you know some skill in um, noticing what what assumptions people are making in their arguments which Conclusions and and which things they're just conjecturing and which they're asserting and so I mean you know you just are expected to make these kind of distinctions. I mean, of course, every subject does some of this, but I think philosophy does it a bit more and a bit more systematically than than other subjects. Um, and um, there was a recent study that was showing that actually. Um, ethics professors are not necessarily more ethical uh, in their uh, personal lives. And I was wondering whether um, the same um, happens with logic professors, that they're not necessarily um, more rational or more logical in their personal and maybe political lives and beliefs. Well, I think when you study logic, you you realize that um, there are what the limits of logic are apart from anything else. And of course, most, most questions in ethics and politics cannot be solved by logic alone. Um, and uh, I, I think the, the tendency amongst logicians is, uh, if, if, if there's a, a weakness, it's that they, they tend to be a little bit paralyzed by questions which can't be solved by, by logic alone. But, um, but it, it, that doesn't mean that uh, they can be solved by ignoring logic. I think, you know, logic is often one of the things that, that, that you need, at least in, in dealing with complex uh, problems. I mean, you don't really need it for, for simple ones. And um, But you know, it's got to be combined with, with various kinds of uh, knowledge from outside logic. And in, for example, some ability, it, 
independently of logic to, to recognize at least simple cases of right and wrong if, if it's an ethical problem. So logic is one instrument, but it's not the only instrument yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. um, to solve those issues. Could you um, give an example of how, for instance, logic is helpful as, you know, in a political situation or a personal situation, but it needs something else to, um, to add up to it to, to well, actually solve the issue? I, the, things, the situations that where logic is useful tend to be, and where as well, formal logic is useful tend to be more complex ones. I, I mean, I think rather going into, into, going into the complexities of, of particular political problems or whatever, because I, uh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't think that, oh, if we taught uh, politicians a little bit of formal logic, then they, they would easily solve the Brexit problem or anything like that. But I think the, the clearest example of the practical value of logic is that um, the that Alan Turing, who, who many people know of from the imitation game, I mean, he um, was solving a very abstract problem in logic called the decision problem. And as a result of that, uh, he invented the computer. I mean, initially just as really as an idea, uh, not not as something that that. Uh, was, uh, existed in concrete reality, but of course, when, when the Second World War came along and uh, the, was the need to, to break the German codes, uh, he then built a machine according to uh, the, the abstract design, and, and that was the origin of the, the modern computer. So, it, I mean, that's that's a very uh, simple way in, in which logic has has made an enormous uh, practical uh, difference. I I can't say that. Uh, that when I'm solving personal problems, I, I, I list some premises and then deduce a conclusion as to what I should do, should do. I, it's, um, it's it's role is a bit more indirect than, than that. Is logic then just a tool you use in your um, work, or does it actually overflow into other fields of your life as well? Well. Um, I think I don't think of it as just a tool. Um, I, I think that um, the principles of logic—they're they're not just linguistic rules. They're actually, um, in some way, laws of reality. And and so, in in studying logic, you are actually studying the world in in its most abstract and general structural features so so that uh, you know it's as if you like logical knowledge is, is valuable as an an end as well as a, a means um, but as, as my my wife would I think agree that when it comes to solving my own personal problems I'd, I that logic doesn't help very much um, you're a strong um, believer in um, debate, in the role of debate in analytic philosophy, and I was wondering if you could um, make the case for it. Well, I think I mean debate arises because um, people disagree, and um, and then rather than using violence or something to settle their their disagreement. Um, we, we have to, to in some way um, compare these opposing views and, and discover the strengths and weaknesses of them. 
and I, I don't think you can really do that uh, w without, um, you know, on the one hand, having people who will prepare to strongly defend a view, and on the other hand, um, have have people who are doing their best to think of objections uh, to it. So it's a just, and this is what you sometimes see in philosophy conferences and and so on. And um, you know, I mean, there are kind of rules to some extent of, uh, of you know, fair and foul play in these these debates. And it, and it isn't just a matter of uh, it's not to do with personal animus. It's really to do with with testing the strengths of a theory to to see what kind of challenges it can overcome, what what things it can explain which maybe it initially looked hard to explain and 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 where it doesn't really have an answer to certain kinds of question and and I think the the best way of discovering the, the strengths and weaknesses is by as I say by having people who are strongly motivated on each side to do the in one case to do the very best they can for the theory and, and in the other case uh, to do the very the very worst that they can to the the theory where and I think it's it's just a you know a, a predictable fact about human nature that people tend not to be very good at seeing the the faults in their own views so you have to get somebody else to do it for you or the critics of um, the debate style of um, analytic philosophy would um, associate this culture with a more kind of masculine culture and they'd say that maybe because of this kind of combative um, style of analytic philosophy um, female philosophers or philosophers from um, ethnic minorities might um, feel less confident in joining um, the debate how would you respond to that? Well I mean, one thing is that that some of the most effective debaters in philosophy that I've known have been have been women. I mean, people like Ruth Barkin Marcus, Ray Langton, Delia Gruff, uh, Farah, Judith Jarvis Thompson, and so on. I mean, they have been really tough debaters, um, and of course, it's true that um, for for people lacking in and self-confidence. Uh, it is difficult to to put your hand up and ask a question and, and see what uh, what kind of response it, it gets. And um, and so, I mean, we do have to be to be careful that the the philosophical culture is is one where everybody is treated with with respect. And one thing that that ha was the case at one time is that. Um, the, probably the questions asked by by women and by people from ethnic minorities were somehow uh, given given less weight than than questions asked by by white men. And I, I mean, I I hope that that is just no longer the uh, the case. I you know, I think there are just too many examples of people who are not white men who who are very respected in the profession and everybody knows that if they ask a question you you really have to be um, you know at, at, we're on top form to answer it properly because it is not going to be an easy uh, question so um, you know I think I think that was more a matter of um, 
prejudices that were that were rife in the general culture uh, um, not disappearing when you got into the philosophy uh, conference or classroom um, and and I think al- although of course those those prejudices have not totally disappeared but I, I think they are they're, they're much uh, less prevalent than they than they were um, of course you know I think also that uh, as the, the the proportion of women and people from ethnic minorities in, in philosophy uh, in, increases, um, th- there's, there's less danger of, of marginalization. But, you know, I, I, I think it is also the case that um, debating in, in public is a scary experience because um, you're, you're putting your ideas on the line. And uh, the whole point of it is that ideas should be properly be tested, but that can mean that your ideas are found wanting in public. And I mean, you'd have to be a very strange kind of person really to enjoy that. One thing that we ask um, uh, the speakers at the festival is uh, whether there's a room, an idea that they have recently changed their mind about. Uh, yeah, actually, yes. I'm 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 not famous for changing my my mind, but. Um, Recently, I've uh, been working on a book on um, how how conditionals work. These are if, if then statements. If, if something were to happen, what would the consequences be? That and um, and, and, and until I started really working on this book, I uh, accepted the the fairly standard views of uh, these statements, particularly what are called counterfactuals, where you're saying it. If it were the case, you know, even though in fact it, it isn't that so and so, what what would then be, uh, what would then follow? And um, I, I've I've come to the conclusion that actually the the standard views are unnecessarily complicated, and that in fact uh, when you when you really look at the uh, the the evidence people have been using, some of it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. It's, I mean, there's, these are cases where the kind of judgments that speakers of the language make uh, are, in my view, mistaken uh, for, for quite explicable reasons. And and so I think, in fact, a much, ser- a much simpler theory of, of conditionals is possible than the ones that people have been holding. So it's a fairly technical <laughs> example, but, but I, I really have changed my mind about that. If you were to choose one thinker, one classic, a classic thinker, um, who has really influenced you, and also um, then if you could speak about like an up-and-coming up, up one or a contemporary one um, that you really admire and present one of their ideas. I think there's a lot to be to be said for Plato, actually. The, uh, and I I think he had a a feel for um, how the underlying nature of reality has to be understood in in terms of uh, the kind of rigorous structural thinking that you find in, in mathematics and and logic which of course logic wasn't very developed in in his time but I but I think the um, his his sense of what kind of thinking would be required to to solve philosophical problems uh, Pointed in, in that uh, in that uh, direction. I mean, what one one very um, interesting 
contemporary thinker of a generation younger than mine um, is uh, Jennifer Nagel at the University of Toronto, who's, who's doing a lot of best work in at the moment in connecting issues in the in the theory of knowledge with uh, the, the psychological study of the of the mind and um, and showing how the way in in which we think about um, sort of philosophical thought experiments about which test our analyses of knowledge and that kind of thing uh, actually depends on the basic human uh, mind reading capacities uh, and so she, as she's using contemporary psychology to, to cast a lot of light on um, what's going on in contemporary epistemology. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. It was hosted by me, Catherine Flay, and our guest speaker this week was philosopher Timothy Williamson. To explore more talks and debates, be sure to check out our online library at iai.tv. You can watch Timothy Williamson in conversation with Saul Kripke in our video on language and logic. Or there's The Limits of Language, which asks whether it's possible to find the right words for everything. Please do leave a comment and review on whatever platform you listen on. And tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.